Hey everyone, it's Gabby and Danny and Manny and you're listening to Oye, Let's Talk. Hey everyone, we're back with a quick turnaround of an episode because just a few days ago, a historic verdict just dropped. So we want to discuss what this means for the future of the United States and police reform and also the trial that's going to make history books. This is a heavy topic. And for those of you who may feel like this might be a little too emotional or too raw right now, we recommend that you listen to it a little bit later. But we're basically diving in into the Derek Chauvin murder trial. Derek Chauvin killed George Floyd about a year ago in front of a Minneapolis convenience store. And the video of Floyd's death went viral. It came out during the trial that he actually kneeled on his neck for more than nine minutes, but that sparked a round of protests. So we're here to talk about what resulted after that. The murder trial actually started a couple of months ago with jury selection, and that selection took almost two weeks. And very carefully, at the end of the day, these 12 jurors and the two alternates that were going to be picked were going to decide whether Derek Chauvin would be convicted of murder and go to jail. And both sides were very deliberate on who they wanted on the trial. And it favored the prosecution that the jury, the jury was actually more diverse than the, than the population in Hennepin County, where the trial took place. And before these people even got to be part of the jury, they were sent questionnaires asking people how they felt on chokeholds by the police, criminal, what they felt about the criminal justice system, whether they believed Minneapolis police are more likely to use force against black suspects, whether they trust the police. So it was very intentional on who both the prosecution and defense wanted to pick to really make this final decision. Six jurors were white, four were black, and two were multiracial. Seven were women, and five were men. So I obsessively watched this, this trial from gavel to gavel. It was very interesting seeing the case that the prosecution was building and them bringing 37 witnesses to really tell this entire story of where George Floyd walks into the store, um, into Cubs food, comes out when the police come to the time that paramedics come all the way to the medical examiner um, and experts that ranged the gamut on what they thought killed George Floyd. The defense only had seven witnesses and their entire defense was kind of taking the blame off Chauvin and trying to say that bystanders were, were harassing Chauvin. Um, they were kind of highlighting Floyd's drug use and the size of his heart, which was abnormal, abnormally large. Um, and they would also at one point blame the car exhaust that was near his face. So basically, if you didn't watch the trial and just to set this up a little bit more for you, it was only three weeks long. Prosecutors had plenty of witnesses to argue their side. They brought in experts, eyewitnesses, um, not only the woman who recorded the video, but the, those very same bystanders that Manny just mentioned. And the defense, their main argument was just to argue that Floyd was kind of sick. His, he had heart disease and his previous drug use would 
contribute to his death. Mm -hmm. So to paint a picture, remember that Chauvin faced three charges, second degree murder, third degree murder, and second degree manslaughter. And the defense at the very least was trying to toss out the second degree manslaughter charge by just trying to have some sort of reasonable doubt that other things affected Floyd and his death or what contributed to his death. So for our listeners, for those who don't know exactly what each count means, third degree murder means you must prove that Chauvin committed a reckless act with a depraved mind and it's up to 25 years in prison. Um, Second degree manslaughter, you must prove that he was culpably negligent and that's up to 10 years in prison and or a $20,000 fine. And then second degree unintentional murder is that you must prove that Chauvin caused George Floyd's death while committing an underlying felony, and that is up to 40 years in prison. And that's the worst charge that's that he the, had. Yeah. Second degree unintentional murder. So I think what really helped out the prosecution in this case was kind of was it was what I was saying before, where they really told on this story and they brought in not only these expert witnesses, which were very important, but their emotional witnesses at the beginning of the trial. You had Charles McMillan, which was this old man who was just happened to be walking by while he was getting arrested. And he was he you can see him in the in in video where he was like, just stop resisting. Stop just resisting, man. Tell him, Mr. Blood, Mr. Blood, just ply with him. Get on in the car because you can't win. We saw George Floyd's girlfriend, Courtney Ross, give a very tearful story of when they first met. And it was very powerful because George Floyd had approached her and he was like, you look very sad. I'm, and I'm paraphrasing. You look very sad. Um, do you, do you want to pray? Do you want to pray? <laughs> He's a kind person just to come up to me and say, can I pray with you? When I felt alone in this lobby, it was so sweet. <laughs> and wow, I these missed that people, part. yeah, these people really, humanized who George Floyd was mm -hmm. and you know reminding the jurors that at the end of the day this this was a human being and he was he he had a family and he had you know a daughter um he had um so at the beginning of the trial they had these emotional witnesses but at the very end the second I believe it was the second to last witness they brought his brother Philonis Floyd and he just he spoke they showed a lot of pictures of Floyd then um, when he was a little kid, when he was when he played ba um, basketball, so I think the prosecution did a really good defense of humanizing George Floyd. And later throughout the trial, we see these expert witnesses coming, and we very rarely does a police chief come and take the stand against one of its own officers. And we slowly saw what a lot of the media has been describing as the the breaking of the blue wall this blue wall of police officers kind of defending one another and you know not being that snitch in the group so it was very um in a sense very a little historical because it's not very common that you see a police chief we saw police chief madaria arredondo take the stand and say that um derek chauvin um, use excessive force. We then later saw the medical examiner of the Hennepin County, Andrew Baker, and the pulmonologist, Dr. Tobin. I think he was amazing. He had these uh, of graphs of just 
telling you how much air was inside his lungs and the weight that was on his body. And it, funny enough, an alternate juror who wasn't part of the deliberations um, came out. They didn't come out like obviously the media found her and they interviewed her and she was saying how compelling Dr. Tobin was because he really came in and she said that he really explained things in a way that was very digestible to them. And at the end of the day, that's what made him such a good witness because he really, you know, these complex things, he really made them really simple. And the other side argues too that, you know, all of that specific medical analogy that he gave out, obviously police officers at the moment in time, whether or not they're using you know, excessive force or not what may have you, they really can't, uh, there's no way to measure that, so to speak, right? Like you don't, you don't know that unless you're like a medical, yeah, unless you're a medical professional who can, who can tell you, you know? And to add to that, and some of the witnesses that Manny mentioned, I think it was some key quotes that probably swayed the jurors, but at most created emotion in the court of public opinion. The Minneapolis police chief saying when he was outright asked if um, Chauvin upheld policy, he said he acted unethically. So a police chief outright denouncing one of his own and saying that he went against practices. So that couldn't even shield Chauvin saying that he was doing what he was taught or what he learned, I think weakened the defense's argument. To Danny's point, one of the bystanders was a firefighter. And she, when she was called to the stand and the defense was trying to poke holes in her story, they kept arguing like, Don't, maybe you were angrily telling Chauvin to get off of him. Like as a firefighter, you didn't render aid and all of these details. And she said, yes, I was watching someone die in front of my eyes. Wouldn't you be angry? And they wouldn't let me get near him. So hearing those, hearing people who had some sort of expertise in the medical field, I think really, really helped paint the picture of the situation beyond the video that we all saw. And I do want to highlight Darnella Frazier, the woman who did catch um, this viral video. Mm -hmm. Shout out to her. Had it not been her, I don't think this case would have made the national headlines or international headlines that it did. There's no doubt. But I my heart goes out to her because she caught someone's last moments and has to live with this. She was just walking down the street one day and now she has to think about this for the rest of her life and her name. She probably didn't ask for this type of fame and that this is what she has to live with. So I just want everyone to remember that all these witnesses that were called to the stand, everyone who was involved, they were asked to do very difficult things and they're humans too. I want to mention one last witness. They called in, the Cup Foods employee who called the police on George Floyd. His name was Christopher Martin. And one of the biggest things that was so impactful was he felt guilt. He felt guilt that George Floyd had died. And he said, quote, if I would have just not taken the bill, this could have been avoided. And it was very sad seeing that reaction that this person has to live with that. He's like, I feel guilty. I am the cause of this person's death. And that was crazy. And I, and I've seen interviews where he he said something along the lines of you know it 
obviously not, this was a stranger to him, right? Um, and he sees the counterfeit bill. And if he said that if he didn't tell his manager, or his boss about it, then it would have been deducted from his paycheck. So it goes to show how all of our lives in, in a weird way are intertwined. And you don't know, you know, George Floyd, I, I'm sure didn't even know that he was impacting the 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 guy's life at the time either and, and had that had that not been a rule you know had that not happened he, there was no reason to call police but I did want to mention the fact that you know all trials all lawyers will argue that emotion emotional appeal is the number one thing that will sway the jurors your way so that's nothing new but the fact that what makes this case so different is the fact that millions of people across the U.S. and the world watched intimate cell phone footage, as Gabby and Manny mentioned. And you were up close and personal. The death was painfully slow. It wasn't like a quick, you know, shooting type thing. You saw blood on the floor. Like, this was painful to watch. And, you know, the phrase, I can't breathe, I can't breathe, repeated over and over and over again. Anyone that watches that in their right mind will say, you know, you're definitely causing harm. It doesn't seem like there's, you know, any danger. Like, I feel like it was, at least to the world, it seemed like there, it was a pretty clear black and white situation. Um, and I read this powerful line that said, to watch that clip is to watch a person's life slipping from their body a little at a time. Like, that gives me goosebumps. People were saying that for many, regardless of the outcome, the fact that it made it to a televised trial, a very highly anticipated trial to watch, you know, like a year later, brought more attention to police misconduct. And that and that in itself was a reason for hope because obviously so many cases go unnoticed. Not all of police brutality is shown um, or documented in any way. Also, according to Vox, slightly less than 2% of officers face manslaughter or murder charges following on-duty shootings. Um, what was also interesting was that race went practically unmentioned during the trial. And U.S. News and World Report says that this should not be surprising because the criminal legal system writes race out at virtually every turn. And I think Manny mentioned this too, um, or, or Gabby, about the police chief testifying against him. Usually, too, a police officer defendant can count on the support of other police officers to testify on his behalf and explain why his or her actions were justified, but not in this case. Every police officer witness testified for the prosecution against Chauvin. After three weeks of the Derek Chauvin trial, on Monday, April 19th, jurors are brought back in for both prosecution events to make their closing arguments. Closing arguments are made and jurors are sequestered into an undisclosed uh, location where they deliberate on the charges that they have been given. And usually, if uh, a general rule of thumb is if jury deliberation is usually short, that means they've, they're, they're in agreement. Because in this case, it had to be a unanimous decision for any conviction. Usually, when jury deliberation takes a long time, it's an indication that there may be a lot of back and forth. So the following day, um, there is a notification that is sent out that a verdict will be read. And everyone tuned in as a judge read the verdict, charging Derek Chauvin on two charges of murder and one charge of manslaughter. So the first day after closing arguments, the jury deliberated for four hours. The next day, it was about six. So within 10 hours, they reached a decision. And that's actually relatively a short time for 
people to make some sort of decision. They probably just slept on it, to be honest. And it's it sounds absolutely terrible, but it seemed like they all kind of made up their minds regardless of the closing arguments. And per, I, I guess you can say per practice, the judge asks each juror if they do agree with the charges filed mm-hmm. as one. And I had the, I call it unfortunate experience to witness history because the cameras were obviously all on Chauvin as they each juror gave their answer. But the judge announced that he was guilty within all three charges and asked each juror, juror number seven or juror number nine, um, do you agree? And the juror said, yes, guilty. And one by one, they did that. And Chauvin's eyes, it was a very emotional moment because he was very stoic. And if you didn't know, he pled not guilty on all three charges, which led to the trial. That was the first time he showed emotion. He did not testify. He spoke very few words, I think four sentences throughout the entire trial in the courtroom. So, to- And that's odd, right? To not testify when it's... You know, no, it's usually, it's the norm. Yeah, really? because you don't want to compromise oh. yourself. So, okay. I mean, some people wondered if he would take it because he did plead not guilty. But mm-hmm. after every juror kept saying guilty, guilty, he would look to the judge, then to the juror. And I don't know about you all, but watching that moment and seeing like his forehead, the wrinkles get deeper, his eyes get wider after every juror spoke. I saw the moment and I think it was after the fifth guilty that he knew his life was over. And that piece of humanity to realize that someone knows that their future is pretty much over, like their life will have less meaning from this point on. It's one thing to be the most hated man in America. It's another thing to know that being the most hated man in America is leading to this consequence. Mm -hmm. And I think that was probably one of the more impactful moments. It wasn't a testimony. It wasn't an emotional part per se. Like it wasn't a part of the trial where they're trying to like poke emotion into people, but it was emotional in itself. And what's interesting, too, is that I believe the closing remarks and once the verdict was read, that was one of the only moments when we really see all of his face and his facial reactions, if any, because throughout the entire uh, trial, he had a mask on. And a lot of uh, that that was a big critique from what I heard, um, you know, commentators on TV say and a few articles I read was that that's a big part of the emotional appeal as well, because when everything is being said and disputed and argued, part of what makes this, you know, a very human and real thing is seeing their facial expression, seeing how they're going to react to certain things if they react, you know, and the fact that we couldn't really see this, this could have, this, this could have definitely impacted. And I think it did impact it in a way too. So needless to say, after the emotional verdict was read, I don't, the tension across the country was people wondering, will he be found guilty or not? And I thought that was so crazy that we all saw this video one year ago. So Mm -hmm. thousands of people protested across the globe to have this happen. And there was doubt that he may not be convicted. And to me, that speaks volumes about where our society is. So seeing Chauvin handcuffed right away, the next day he was in a Minnesota correctional facility. He had a new mugshot. Like, 
you can't say justice has necessarily been served, but to see him go through the entire process, because it was an issue to get him arrested in the first place. So now it's what's next for Chauvin? What's next for our society? So Chauvin's next hearing won't be for another eight weeks. And that's when we will find out um, how long his sentencing will be. And his sentencing, there's a lot of factors that will kind of play into how many years he gets um, because he kind of has a clean record of no criminal history. Sentencing guidelines for the two counts of murder is usually 12 and a half years. Um, mm -hmm. But it could be as high as 40 years. And then for the second degree manslaughter, it carries a maximum sentence of 10 years, but guidelines would most likely sentence to four years. On top of that, there's something called aggravate, quote, aggravating factors. And Mr. Chauvin had the option of either having the jury rule on these factors or putting it in the hands of the judge. At the end of closing arguments, he decided that he was going to give the judge that decision. And then basically what these aggravating factors consist of, it's what's known as quote, upward sentencing departure. And that's basically citing these different factors, which include the killing that Mr. Floyd happened was in the presence of children, that he was treated with particular cruelty, or that Mr. Chauvin as a police officer abused his position of authority. So there's different, quote, aggravating factors. And then the judge will take those into consideration along with the guidelines that I just read to determine um, his sentencing terms, his sentencing time. And in two months, we will know. Well, currently, Derek Chauvin in our society has been deemed a murderer. He can appeal um, for this case. And many are saying that one of his big appeals is that this case really brought in a lot of national attention. Mm -hmm. And that it made it impossible to him for Derek Chauvin to have an impartial jury, which is very important for a trial. If the jury is no longer impartial, it can become a mistrial. And while the judge did ask the jury every day, you know, don't watch TV, the defense attorney from the beginning, Mr. Nelson, wanted the jury to be sequestered, which is basically, you know, having them isolated, not come out of like, a hotel or an undisclosed location where they can't see their family, talk to anybody for like X until the trial is over. But I think I heard the, the judge dispute that argument. I Correct. think he said that. Correct. Okay, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so but well, they were, they were sequestered as they deliberated. Yes. Correct. Correct. They were right, sequestered. Well, right. But not, not during the actual trial, they would go back to their you know homes. So that is a, an argument, but most people are saying that it's not going to be enough to really uh, give Chauvin that appeal. Looking forward in August, we, ha we will have the next um, trial for the three officers that were with Derek Chauvin who were charged mm -hmm. of aiding and abetting murder and manslaughter. And now because Chauvin has been found guilty of that, it is more easier for prosecution to go over af after these officers, after this verdict. Right. So essentially, it doesn't end here. We still have to see what type of sentencing Chauvin will have and how much time he'll spend behind bars. But of course, there's good behavior, there's a possibility for early probation, etc. 
So I just want this and goes back to my first point made, like if you are celebrating this verdict right now, if you are still emotionally trying to wrap your mind around this, because it was a very tense and burdening case for a lot of people, just please understand that there's still a lot of unknowns. The conclusion was just this verdict, but it doesn't stop here. On that note, we do have to spend some time comparing this to what actually happens in our society. The question has become over and over again, like, was justice served and will justice be served in the future? In the same week that I was covering this trial for work even, it was pretty emotional because there just seemed to be a lot of law enforcement news. So living in Central Florida, as sad as it sounds, I could honestly say that there is a black person who's killed at the hands of law enforcement averaging about once a month. And a lot of these names are untold. So when I see people post about certain names or certain instances, those are the ones that just kind of make national headlines because it probably happens in your community a lot more than you think. So within the mm -hmm. same week, it's very common for journalists to be following cases for months, if not even years. And I remember one weekend I was working my usual shift and two black teens were killed at the hands of a deputy. And it was a very confusing situation. Like they thought the car was stolen. They didn't understand. One kid was 18. The other was 16. A third person was in the car. They're still alive today. Obviously it's very, it's practice that when a law enforcement officer um, fire or fires their gun or kills someone on the job, they're put on paid administrative leave. And the agency turns over the in investigation to, in my case, the Florida Department of Law Enforcement. And then the FDLE um, gives their findings to the local state attorney's office if there's no like conflict of interest. And this it had been five months. The family the day beforehand was saying, we need justice. Like, is this deputy going to face charges or not? And then the state attorney comes out the next day saying, we're close to revealing our findings. Guess what? The deputy was justified. And it's this huge 12 page report. And I'm thinking, I don't understand why it took five months to say the deputy was right to fire their gun when they found out the deputy confused the car. The car was never stolen. The license plate number was off by two. So that weighed heavy because the day before we get this verdict and then the next day, we're hearing that a deputy was justified in taking the life of two kids who were not criminals. And even and hundreds of similar cases all across, you know, absolutely. The nation, so. Again, that same day, someone which this turned into a BBC documentary. Um, wow. Last summer, Salathis Melvin was killed in the Florida mall parking lot. It's seen that, or it's assumed that he's a gang member, regardless of that. He was shot in the back running away by a deputy and that deputy's back on the job and the state attorney's office is not done with their investigation. And he might not be out on the streets, but to know that a law enforcement officer who was on paid administrative leave is now working again. And in my humble opinion, there's very few laws that are, or there's very few crimes that are punishable by death. So to see a law enforcement officer kill others and see very little repercussions or to be in that situation again and not be removed from it until investigations are full and done, it's very odd for me to see. It's very, 
it's like whiplash. Like, what are the rules? It's very frustrating. Yeah. It, beyond frustrating, it's like, wait, what's okay and what's not okay then? If- no, that's the thing. There are no rules. And that's why supposedly the Biden administration is fighting for that. And, and they really want to implement a new new police reform is what they're saying. So we'll see what that looks like. But that's the promising aspect, because, again, the same week we get this historic verdict. But lo- in terms of local news, the news whiplash of, OK, wait, so we're not as far as we think we are. That's OK, I guess. And it's not to say it's neither here nor there, like just to have that straight ethical line. I'm not saying that the deputies or the law enforcement officers need to face consequences or what they did was wrong. It's that people died and they're not getting the same treatment as like the Chauvin trial. Like it doesn't seem like there's a criminal justice justice procedure or the procedure is mm-hmm. very muddled. And I think that's what's very frustrating for America to see is that every situation is different, but how it's handled is vastly different, but sometimes it's not even addressed. And I think that's the heartbreaking part is that you want someone's death to be addressed, especially if it's at the hands of people who are supposed to protect and serve. Mm-hmm. And we, Gabby, that was a perfect reminder of, as we sit here and celebrate, obviously, justice was served when the, when that verdict was read. We need to remember our somber reality that sometimes that that is the exception in the society that we live in. And most times people of color don't get that justice because they've been wrongly killed at the hands of the police. And as Danny alluded, I think moving forward, how do we fix the system? How do we not, you know, reform, so reform the system so stuff like this doesn't happen, doesn't need to happen again? I think, unfortunately, that comes from the government level. Like, you know, when people are like, well, what can I do? What can I do? You can call your, you know, representatives, your legislatures, your, you know, make a call to action. Like, don't just talk about it the way we're talking about it, because even though it is important, and and as Manny mentioned, this is an isolated case, and and there was some sort of victory, it, it doesn't stop here. And it's all about action. It can't just be words. It can't just be a social media post. We talked about it in our in our last episode. Um, it, there has to be more. Yes, and I will give you some resources to help you guys. I just want to tell our listeners that they should consider contacting their representatives of Congress and their senators to support the George Floyd and Justice Policing Act. And basically, this has this is a bill that the White House is behind. But it was actually introduced last year in the wake of the protests after the George Floyd killing. And basically what this piece of legislation tells us is that it would ban chokeholds. It would end what is called qualified immunity for law enforcement. That's basically legal protection that police officers have that really limits the victim's ability to to sue them for misconduct. So this legislation would basically end that type of special treatment that police get. They would also ban no-knock warrants in federal drug cases, which we saw in the killing of Breonna Taylor. Um, The legislation would also mandate data collection on police encounters and create a nationwide police misconduct registry to help everyone accountable for these officers. The legislation would also prohibit racial and religious profiling 
and also redirect funding to community-based policing programs. And now just to give you a quick um, update on where this bill stands, as I mentioned before, this was actually, it was tried, it, it tried getting passed last year, but the Senate version was not favored by Democrats because it didn't outright ban, um, it didn't outright ban chokeholds. It just kind of told people, it suggested people to, oh, don't use them, but it didn't outright ban them. So Democrats thought it didn't go far enough. Early March of this year, it passed the House of Representatives, but seven, but a couple of weeks later, it kind of remains bogged down in the Senate as we speak. Um, but after this verdict hearing, we see a prominent um, Republican coming out, and he happens to be the lone black GOP member, Mr. Tim Scott. Um, and he has come out and he says he is in talks with both um, Senator Booker and another House representative who put this bill, who put up this bill. And he's trying to sort of work out some type of version of a bill that they could potentially pass. Unlike last year, when this bill was first introduced to Congress, um, Democrats were not we're not controlling the White House nor um, the Senate, unlike um, unlike now. So we'll see what happens with that. Um, that is something that would, you know, create this federal mandate to fix a lot of the problems that we have been seeing. Is it the end-all answer? It definitely is not because I think the fight still continues. But it is something that is currently trying to be worked through Congress. It failed last year. We'll see how far it gets here. I don't think anyone should hold their breath, but I like to be hopeful. It gives us a little glimmer of hope, at least. Or that there's action, because I think that what Danny was saying is moving forward after this verdict to make sure we... I, I'm sorry, Manny, earlier you described it as justice. Like I don't think our justice system often delivers justice. That's but you're I, right. In this case, I felt like there was accountability, and I believe that's just what people want at the end of the day, mm -hmm. for people to be held accountable for their actions in our criminal justice system and for people to face consequences accurately. Before, like, we had Hammurabi's code, eye for an eye. So if you shot my eye out, I would shoot your eye out. And then that's what kind of started our, our criminal justice system to say, okay, we can't be as gruesome as that because it shouldn't be life for life. But we can create some sort of system to like give people consequences for any type of crime they committed and crimes defined 100%. by society. So it's outrageous to me that lives are lost and some people can continue their lives as normal. And every case is different. Every law is different. We're only going to advance from here. But as we said, like hopefully this case will be setting the standard as opposed to just being the exception for years to come. And that's why I think it's so historic, because it's going to be a pivotal point in what we see not only in policing, but in how law enforcement or even the average person is going to be held accountable for their actions. And I think at the end of the day, too, our legal system is meant to demonstrate that nobody is above the law. We definitely want to see some change because if there's no change, we're going to be seeing the same problems. And we talked, you know, on a federal level, we see Congress trying to pass this bill. Um, over in the White House, the Department of Justice just announced 
that they would launch an investigation into the Minneapolis Police Department. And basically what this investigation is going to look into whether the department engages in excessive force, how it engages in discriminatory conduct, whether how whether its treatment of those with behavioral health disabilities is unlawful, review the department's policies, training, supervision. At the end, um, the, the, the Justice Department would issue a public report, and it could also bring a civil suit against the department or into a settlement agreement to kind of like, hey, this is what we found. This is what we recommend. If you don't put them into action, we're going to legally force you to put them into action. So I think that's, you know, we that the powers of the Justice Department were kind of, you know, minimized during the Trump administration. Obama's administration really took advantage of this. And hopefully with this administration, we'll see a lot of other police departments getting investigated by the Department of Justice. And as I continue talking, I feel like I just want to mention that while we do have this one systemic problem, I think it requires different modes of attack, you know. And as we look more towards like a state level, we have seen some states kind of already put some of that into action because federally it's taking a very long time. And you guys can go on joincampaignzero.org. And it's basically this nonprofit organization that tracks the progress of legislation for police reform across the entire United States. According to their website, at least 134 state laws have been enacted from 2014 to 2020 to address police violence. New legislation wow. has been enacted in 40 state, 42 states from 2014 to 2020. There's change. Yeah. Like what you're mentioning is one, it's great. Someone's doing the tough work of checking it out, but I also want to empower listeners. Public records exist. You're allowed to request them. You're allowed to request police reports and whatever about any situation from your sheriff's office or your police department. It's not just something for news or investigators, or even if it doesn't concern you, if you have enough information, you can request it. Um, most police departments and sheriff's offices also have citizen review boards. So it's a group of community members that review their policies every so often. I invite you to familiarize yourself with people who sit on them because they're your local pastors, your neighbors, business owners, and make sure that your local law enforcement agency are utilizing them. Because if they're not, or their policies haven't been reformed or looked at in a minute, then maybe you can jumpstart that process. Or a lot of times those seats go vacant because nobody wants to fill them or know that there are seats to fill. So that could be you. I'm definitely empowering people to look into not just ways to, I guess, fight off law enforcement because I know abolish police is a popular movement right now, but the reality is that's not going to happen overnight. Abolish police is a, is a popular movement right now, but that's not going to happen overnight if that's your goal. The reality is that law enforcement's here to stay and you actually have a opportunity to be part of the policy making or to make change within the law enforcement agency yourself. So that's another way to take action beyond trying to pass laws or supporting government officials and all of that. And familiarize yourself. There's community policing organizations. That's something that you can participate in as well. And a lot of community policing isn't walk around with a gun and walk through the neighborhood. It's not the neighborhood watch, but it's getting going into communities you're, you may not be familiar with 
and getting to know the people around there and having each other's back. So if there's crime happening, figuring out how you can battle that and see where it's targeting and working with law enforcement or just within the community to just solve these issues on your own as well. And in order to instill some hope into our listeners, I want to highlight some states who have already passed some very important legislation. And I hope that we can pass this federally. So all, you know, we have that same standard of practice across the board. Recently, we had Maryland pass um, a big bill and one, a part of it um, created a statewide use of force policy and says that officers who violate those standards causing serious injury or death can be convicted and sent to prison for up to 10 years. That's like written into their law. Um, um, Also of note, we have Colorado, which passed a sweeping bill less than a month ago, and that law banned chokehold. It required officers to intervene if they witnessed excessive force, and it mandated body cameras statewide within three years. We have the state of Iowa also banning and rest- or restricting chokeholds, among other measures. But that's actually, so just to know, a lot of law enforcement agencies actually already banded chokeholds within their own policies. It's just everyone's writing these rules out now to have them formally written as law to make sure they can never be brought back or that they can never be justified. So make sure to look closely at your local communities as well, that maybe it's written as not a suggested practice, but make sure there's a law saying that there's some sort of consequence if used, if that's your shtick. Mm -hmm. Um, That being said, I think we've kind of covered a lot this episode. I think the most important thing that we want our listeners to gain out of this is it doesn't end here. If you're choosing to celebrate this verdict or if you feel personally impacted by it, I do want you to feel those feelings and be comfortable in it. And we all understand what weight has probably been lifted off many's shoulders, but it doesn't end here. So invite your friends to chat about it or the next time this popular topic comes up and say, Oye, let's talk about why this verdict was so important and what it means to others as well.